for the food, which I think we all enjoyed enormously, and it was incredibly generous of them. Someone asked me whether the Philippine Forum would be interested in taking donations, and I asked Norman Madrid if it would be something that they would like, and he said yes. So I will now ask him to stand up. And in addition, if you miss him and do feel like giving a contribution, the address of the Philippine Forum is 200 West 54th Street, apartment 5C, 10019. Norman, do you want to stand up? So... Um, just a couple of announcements on some future PEN events. On April 28th, on Sunday at 4 o'clock, three PEN writers, Bernard Malamud, Galway Canal, and Francis Duplessis Gray, will talk with three Chinese writers, a poet, Yan Zen, a short story writer, Ti Ning, and a non-fiction writer, Quinn Mu, about writing in China. Then on... Um, May 21st, um, Juan Bennett, author of Return to Region, will be in a dialogue with Barbara Probe Solomon, um, also here at the Penn Center. Finally, I think, where are the case sheets? Did, were they on the chairs when people sat down? Are, are there piles of them anywhere that I could show people? It seems as though there are large numbers of people who don't have them. All right. Okay, on the way out, those of you who didn't get case sheets, we've produced a case sheet for the three writers who are honoring tonight, the three Filipino writers. And at the back of the case sheet, it tells you two people that you can write to, the Honorable George Schultz, Secretary of State, and Dr. Ferdinand Marcos, President of the Republic of the Philippines. So we hope that you will... Um, in addition to enjoying the reading tonight, uh, use your pens when you get home in behalf of the writers that we're honoring. And we're going to begin now by a statement by Ninochka Roska about the situation of writers in the Philippines. Ninochka is the author of Monsoon Collection, published by Queensland Press, and she's a writer in exile, a Filipino writer. Ninochka. On uh, September 21st, 1972, one o'clock in the morning, Ferdinand E. Marcos signed Presidential Proclamation 1081, declaring a state of siege in the Philippines and imposing martial law over 7,400 islands and 50 million men, women, and children. Simultaneously, military teams farmed out through the streets of northern, central, and southern Philippines in the cities of Lawag, Vigan, Baguio, Manila, Quezon, Pasay, Caloacan, Legazpi. You just ruined my first paragraph. <laughs> okay. uh, Legazpi, Cebu, Bacolod, Domaguete, Davao, Cagayan de Oro, 
Misamis Oriental and Holo. Within 24 hours, 5,000 men and women were taken to makeshift detention areas to stay there for who knew how long. Since that time, 13 years ago, more than 100,000 Filipinos have gone into one or the other of the detention centers, each accused of having committed or of intending to commit subversion, sedition, and or inciting to rebellion, or of being part of one conspiracy or another. Although it was supposed to have been lifted in 1981, martial law has become the norm of political leadership, institutionalized as it is through such legislation as Constitutional Amendment Number 6, which allows Mr. Marcos to continue issuing decrees and letters of instructions despite the existence of a parliament. There are at present more than a thousand secret decrees which have not been published and whose contents are not known. It is not surprising for anyone to find himself imprisoned for having allegedly committed or for allegedly thinking of doing something no one knew was illegal in the first place. In a country where gossiping, or rumor-mongering as they call it, is punishable by the death penalty, the existence of these secret decrees can be more than just ridiculous. I wasn't taken in the first wave of arrests that morning of September 21st. I had 10 days of freedom yet to go around Manila, hiding with friends and relatives. It was a short and rather abrupt lesson in the meaning of trust and betrayal. My friends, mostly writers and artists, young and defenseless as I was, did not hesitate to provide refuge. On the contrary, they thought it an honor and a lark to hide a fugitive from the Marcos regime. On the other hand, my blood relations, who shared in the political and economic power of the Marcos government, refused me sanctuary. And in the end, I was turned over to the military by a man who was rich enough and powerful enough to have interceded for my freedom. He not only chose not to do so, he actively looked for me for the explicit purpose of handing me over to Colonel Miguel Aure, whose name would appear again and again in accounts of torture and executions. It was perhaps in recognition of the almost instinctive repulsion for and opposition to militarization among the intelligentsia that compelled Marcos to inflict a frontal lobotomy on the nation. Since 1972, I have witnessed the decimation of my generation, that generation we call the children of the first quarter storm, in reference to the first three months of 1970, when in one sustained celebratory collective endeavor, we scrutinized our past and our present, asking who we were, where were we going, what was our mission on this earth.
The brightest, the most promising children of the first quarter storm were either cut down the way Emanuela Caba, poet, Maria Lorena Barros, poet, and Henry Romero, fictionist, were killed, or imprisoned the way Mila Aguilar, Jose Maria, Sison, and Jose Lacaba were imprisoned. Or they were broken in spirit so that they ended up in writing committees, ghosting books for Mr. Marcos. This regime ravaged not only the economic resources of the country, but its intellectual resources as well. By the time I left the Philippines, the joke was that the country had many writers, but only one author. Ironically, the weak former Senator Benigno Aquino was gunned down at the Manila International Airport. Mr. Marcos was supposed to have gone into isolation for two weeks to write two books. I suppose writing has been used as an excuse for many things, but this was the first time in the country it had been used as an alibi for murder. Although a number of painters, film directors, and other people in the arts have also been imprisoned, the number of writers, poets, and playwrights who have been suppressed, whether by imprisonment or by either physical or spiritual extermination, is out of proportion when one considers how very few writers there are in the country. Before I left the Philippines, a well-placed government man, himself formerly a writer, gave me the mathematics of it. There were, he said, possibly 50 FIBO writers, competent writers and poets, or one out of every million Filipinos. To have two killed, one missing, and more, ad, more than a dozen of the Manila writers arrested and imprisoned indicated a mailed-fist policy toward the word itself. This policy was meant to preserve the curtain of silence that fell on the nation that morning of September 21st. During those 10 days of reprieve, as I roamed Manila, it was the most immediate, most palpable change. Silence in a city which otherwise was one of the noisiest in the world. All radio and television stations had been closed. All publishing houses had been sealed. Conversation among a storytelling Sunday people had stopped. The silence grew through the decade of the 70s to the extent that even copiers, mimeographing machines, and other instruments of the word had to be registered with the government. When the same government official leaned across his polished desk to tell me to leave, to get out of the country, it was in tacit understanding that one of us had to survive, to outlast the long night of the dictatorship, to break, if possible, the conspiracy of silence surrounding the country. One of us had to bear witness, not only to Mr. Marcus's culpability, but the culpability of other nations, other governments, which provide the means by which the dictatorship maintains its power. On February 5 this year, the Reagan administration submitted to Congress a request for a 280 million aid package for the Philippines, 
three times the amount approved last year. In the last 10 years, the United States has spent far more on the Philippines than on the entire Central American region. And in the 12-month period following the assassination of Senator Benigno Aquino, and despite the cancellation of President Reagan's visit to Manila, the United States and its allies poured a billion dollars into the Marcos Treasury to enable it to weather the crisis. Meanwhile, even as mothers wept over the price of milk in Manila supermarkets, Mr. Marcos's relatives were reported to have acquired five buildings in Manhattan, the most recent being the Siemens Institute. It is to bear witness to these truths and to break the conspiracy of silence that some of us chose to go into exile. I do not wish to be melodramatic about once being cut off from friends and family, from concern, care, and solace. However, there are those who equate exile in a Western developed country with comfortable living. I merely wish to point out that there are comforts on both sides of the Pacific, yes, even in Manila, provided one played one's cards right. In any case, we know that man has never lived by bread alone. As far as a writer, a poet is concerned, a reader, a listener, the very idea that he is able to reach someone with his words by the words of a testimonial of truth, that is the very breath of life. Nothing less will do. Thank you. But how we're going to proceed, we're going to have two American poets, Quincy Troop and Sharon Olds, read from the writings now of the three imprisoned poets. But before they do, I wanted to read a brief statement that the Silence Voices Committee evolved in the process of preparing this reading. We, the Silence Voices Committee for this event, Mary Morris, Ninochka Roska, Marina Tsemkina, and myself, Carol Asher, felt it important to give a brief literary introduction to tonight's reading. The issue of good and bad writing is always a bit out of place when one is speaking of writers who are imprisoned and tortured, writers whose very words have been banned in their own country. The first and absolutely correct instinct is to secure the freedom of the writer and the release of the writer's voice, which in fact is what we hope to do tonight. Is the sound good? Yes. Oh, okay, sorry. It, it's, it's, here it feels very muffled. Yet we have also gathered you here to listen to the writings of those who have been physically silenced. At the same time, we on the committee found ourselves outside our easy frame of reference in choosing among the poetry of those honored tonight, Jose Sison, Mila Aguilar, and Jose Lacaba. In the United States, what has come to be associated with stirring poetry is the private moment of individual introspection, the raw confession, delicate detail, 
or break a surprising insight that by its exquisite accuracy creates a universal fullness, the sense that in reading a poem, a new nerve has been awakened, which allows us an expanded breath, a deep sigh of contemplation. Filipino poetry, as we discovered, is not like this. It calls on a public rather than a private imagination. It often resorts to large, generally hated or loved symbols with which to convey the writer's urgency. And though it may offer the listener a moment in the labyrinth of an individual's experience, this moment is used to elicit a general national sorrow or rage. In the United States, a genuine and I think respectable fear for the sacrifice of human life, as well as a less respectable political conservatism, has frozen us into a caution before the violence of large-scale social change and an allergic sensitivity to the mix of literature and political dogma. However, given the conditions in the Philippines, its writers can trust that a high-pitched mood of discontent will make their audience receptive to calls for political, even violent political action. Finally, while we are used here to being moved privately by what is written to be read on the page, Filipino poems have been made to be recited, to be heard aloud on didactic occasions. There is also a specificity to the history of the poetry you will hear tonight that must be understood if the work is to resound with its greatest possible richness. Filipino poetry arouses, arises out of an age-old oral tradition carried forth in hundreds of native languages. Yet colonization in the Philippines began over 400 years ago, with the Spanish takeover in 1572. The rule of Spain brought not only the violent superimposition of a patriarchal culture over a variety of tender matriarchal forms, but a new overarching official language. Tagalog, which you will hear tonight, is in fact a mix of Malay, Indonesian, and Spanish, I guess with also some Chinese. Spanish colonization was followed at the end of the 19th century by a brief period of British rule, again with its legislated change in national language. And in the 20th century, the Philippines has withstood American, Japanese, and again American domination, each time with its linguistic change. Whereas the peoples of Latin America, to make an easy comparison, have at least been able to develop a literary identity in a single imperial language, in the Philippines, a nation that was not yet a nation has had to develop its verbal expression in the constantly shifting languages of foreigners. Moreover, in the last 40 years of the Cold War, the slim reeds of an incipient native expression have had to find their natural bent amidst twin heavyweight ideologies of the United States and the Soviet Union. Although, as in the words of the documentary most of you saw tonight, Filipinos want to sing our own song, in a country living under a U.S.-supported regime, it is not surprising that the primary images of opposition come from Marxism. In fact, not only do many of the best Filipino poets stand as leftists in opposition to the Marcos regime, but many have in turn been deemed criminals. They have been convicted, with or without explicit charges against them, imprisoned, tortured, or sent into exile, and their work has been banned. Last year, while introducing a reading of the works of the imprisoned Soviet poet, Irena Radishinskaya, Joseph Brodsky made an important point. The very conviction or sentencing of a poet is not only a criminal offense, but above all an anthropological one, he said, for, for it constitutes an offense against language, against all that differentiates man from beast. But wait, 
Imagine that we are in a military detention camp. Suddenly, the electric current has been broken. The prisoners sit, stand, or lie in darkness. Then, out of the black night, a solitary voice rises with the lines that most have heard before. It is the poetry that stems from such conditions, from their acute suffering, as well as the enormous hope for their relief that we shall now hear. Ninochka Roska will now introduce, with just a brief reminiscence, uh, who, in fact, Mila Aguilar was, and then the poetry of Mila Aguilar will be read by Sharon Olds, whose most recent and very well-received book of poetry was The Dead and the Living, published by Knopf. Mila Aguilar... <coughs> graduated from the University of the Philippines and served on its faculty as assistant professor of English. She was a staff writer of Graphic Magazine and has two volumes of poetry. She was arrested last year, and the Marcos newspapers, oddly enough, labeled this slight, rather soft-spoken woman a, quote, guerrilla Amazon, unquote. <laughs> One newspaper here in New York called her that without qualifying the statement, and in this, at the same time said that she was, quote, allegedly working as assistant directress for extension services of the St. Joseph College in Manila. This cast, casting of doubt on the simplest, easiest, verifiable, <laughs> verifiable fact of her existence while presenting as absolute truth what can only be suspicion, is symptomatic of the way Ms. Aguilar's arrest and detention has been handled. The case against her and two others has been dismissed by the courts and her two co-accused released. She is still in jail. To a foreigner, you accuse me of sloganeering and being unpoetic. My writing lines like, damn the U.S. Marcos dictatorship. Friend, my reply is, you do not understand the weight, the ocean depth of our class hatred. Yesterday I heard a comrade had been ambushed. One of five bullets had smashed through his young heart. When my ears caught the uttered syllables of his name, the muscles of my jaw tightened to the hardness of a gun butt. My fingers curled up to a firm trigger squeeze, and the heat of anger exploded like bullets out of my eyes. The People's Poem, one. When two hands tug at a thin, worn string, sometimes it's bound to snap. After weekends, we tie it up again until the growing knot itself becomes the breaking point. Then something snaps forever. Dammed up rivers stay quiet as long as they have streams that flow 
But when the storm comes, the overflow can be so strong that even thick concrete comes crashing. Strings snap, but dams do more. Two, have I touched your life? Has the wind from the mountain of my soul rustled through your leaves like mayas on a ledge? Moving like rhythmical mannequins, have I rested your tired eyes? After the first torrent, amidst a sky foreboding further ill, has my chirping chipped the stillness? Tell me, have I given? My friend at the crossroads. My friend is at the crossroads, and I cannot even comfort her. She sits by the breakwater, but I cannot reach her. Like surf rushing ashore, I stop past her feet, washed out wave upon wave of the ocean that binds me. I see but would not understand, I feel but could not accept. How like a bird I would like to sing to her, but I have failed, and now she would not let me. Paul hanging over Manila. As the boat glides slowly, portward, carrying the fresh winds from sea and countryside, one can see the Paul hanging over Manila, city of one's birth, one's most fevered child. The dissonance of cars bustling to and fro greets ears used to the silence of cicadas chirping warmly from cool treetops, and later the gray smirking faces lined up in jeeps reeking of sweat and soot-laden collars. On the pall that hangs over Manila, city of my birth to violence, my most fevered child. On a hilltop at night, Far from the smokestacks belching the daily black of exploitation, I watch her, bejeweled now with varicolored gems of light, moving, seeming slow from a distance. She lies, hard black stone inlaid with clusters of gold and diamonds and rubies, hiding the many sins lurking behind esteros and seedy bars, knowing yet not thinking of the unfathomable grief she causes, grief causing lonely acts, pushing onward a hungry, desperate people. Comrade. This morning, comrade, after drowning out the depths of my sadness in a solitary bathroom, I was surprised to find that Kaliza had ironed the pants and shirt I had laid out for our meeting. Had she seen the silence in my eyes upon waking, I wondered, so much concern to compensate for someone else's self-indulgence. Mila Aguilar.
next poet whose work we'll read is Jose Lacaba, and Jose Lacaba writes in Tagalog. So we will have the Tagalog read by Luis Cabalquinto, who um, is a poet himself and has uh, written in the Poetry Review and other magazines, and in fact just received a New York Arts Foundation grant for poetry. And then the English will be read by Quincy Troop, the author of a book called Skulls Along the River, published by I Read Books, and who is now finishing a novel, The Footman's. First, however, Ninochka will get a brief reminiscence. This is beginning to sound like my bio. <laughs> Jose F. Lacaba, or Pete as we call him, was educated by the Jesuits at the Ateneo de Manila. He worked as a staff writer of the Philippines Free Press. In many ways, our professional life closely paralleled each other. When I was just starting as a journalist doing freelance work, I ran into some I ran into some problems with the Congressional Committee on Anti-Filipino Activities. The rather over, overpowering congressmen, who didn't read anyway, demanded that I provide them with someone who could vouch for my identity as a writer. Otherwise, I would be held for contempt of Congress. The first name that came to me was that of poor Pete, they called him, and even though I'd met him only very casually, uh, he took on that responsibility. And probably it was in, acknowledge, uh, in acknowledgement of this rather special bond that when his brother Emmanuel was killed in 1974, I was the first to receive the news via an anonymous telephone call. Pete was in jail at the time being tortured and it was a measure of how fond we were of the Lacaba brothers that Nick Joaquin, another writer, agreed to accept the National Artist Award from Imelda Marcos, provided that Pete was released. Uh. Marco Basayan ang Tagalog na tulani Pitlakaba. Before I read uh, Pitlakaba's poems, I think I would like to make a brief statement about about uh, the language situation in the Philippines. You're going to be reading. You're going to be hearing uh, Tagalog reading by a person who wasn't born into the Tagalog language. In the Philippines, there are at least eight major languages. And I didn't know Tagalog until I was uh, about uh, 15 years old, which I learned in, in, uh, in school. But I can bet anybody who, uh, who was born in the Tagalog uh, area that I can speak Tagalog like anybody else. My content depends on uh, the first uh, poem is called Talipapa. Nagikipaghalikan ang mga langaw sa mga kamatis, galunggong, at hipong inaayos-ayos at pinapaypayan ng malansang kamay sa buong maghapon. 
habang sinusundot ng kukong bibili ang nasa bilao. Tindirang kulubot ay nakatayo sa tambakan sa tabi nakabuka ka at di nakatalikod para mabantayan niya ang kanyang tinda at matanggihan din ang sobrang pagtawad samantalang siya ay nagpapaginhawa. Mga langaw na sandaling nabulabog ay lilipat sa ibang tambak at agad babalik pabulong na iikot-ikot. Quincy's and my Tagalog is not good enough for us to be sure which poem goes next. Impromptu market. The flies exchange kisses with tomatoes, small fish, and shrimp, arranged, rearranged, and fanned by greasy hands all afternoon. While buyers' hands poke about the contents of this bamboo basket, a wrinkled vendor stands among the piles on the sidewalk, legs apart, unabashed, that she may watch her wares and say no to the too cheap bargaining, all the while enjoying a measure of relief. The flies, momentarily startled, will move to another pile and promptly return, whispering as they circle. Uh, the next poem is called Lingo Nangabi. Uh, she asked me if I wanted to announce the uh, translator. I don't know who translated his poems, <laughs> so she will do it. Linggo ng gabi, Sapateros. Ganitong oras, pasado alas nueve, binatat dalagay lalabas sa sine. Pauwi maingay sila at maraming tuksuhan. Tawanan, kwentuhan sa kalya. Alisin ang matang pagod sa libro. Pagmasdan lihim ang kasiyahang ito. Na hindi pwede sa isang tulad mong hindi marunong makihalubilo. Anong masasabi mo tungkol sa isang palabas na tiyak ay walang kwenta? At paano ka ba makakasama sa mga kababayang Hindi mo kilala. Sunday night in Pateros. At this time, past nine, young men and women exit from the movies. Going home, they are full of chatter, teasing, laughing, exchanging stories on the street. Remove those weary eyes from your books. Observe in secret the merrymaking denied to one such as you, ignorant of camaraderie. What can you say about one movie that is surely worthless 
And how can you ever be among countrymen you do not know? Uh, the next poem is called Pawi Mulasa Sine. Ang lamig ng kalsaday lalong pinalalamig ng lakad kung mabilis. Halos hating gabi na ang sagot ng orasan ng isang napagtanungan. Mga tagal pang maghihintay para sa pasahero ang bus na sinakyan ko. At ako'y giniginaw ang aking alaalay nasa Dolce Vita. Pero ang nakikita ko sa kalya ng itsagay, mailaw na palengket, baboy na mapupula, pasa ng mga taong pawisan pa ang sando. Sa kasaharapan ko, binata at dalaga, o baka mag-asawang bagong kasal, ewan ko ba, balabal ng babae ang braso ng lalaki. Wala akong trabaho ang ginagawa kung gabi. Wala akong katabi. Jacket ang kailangan ko o ang matagal ko ng kaibigang serbesa. Uh, the other poem was uh, translated by Luis Francia, as is this one. Uh, the next one, uh, which is also a translation of the same poem, uh, is uh, translated by Ninochka Rotska. So it's two translations. Going home from the movies. The cold road becomes even colder as I walk faster. It's almost midnight, declares the watch of one inquired of. This bus I am on will wait a long while for other fares, and I am cold. My thoughts are with La Dolce Vita. But what is seen on this street of Echege or a market shiny with light and red pork meat, hefted by men in their sweat-stained undershirts. And in front of me are a young man and woman. Perhaps they are newlyweds. I don't know. She has as her shawl the arms of her man. I have no job to do at night. I have no one beside. A jacket is what I need, or a friend of long-standing beer. The street's chill turns colder with the swift pace of my walk. It is midnight, says the watch of one to whom I toss the question. The bus I board lingers, waiting for passengers even as I shiver, my, lock, my mind locked upon La Dosha Vita. My eyes noting on Echege Street, the market aflame with lights, the bloodied carcasses of pigs hoisted on the shoulders of men in shirts darkened by sweat. 
a young man and woman take the seat before me. Perhaps they are newlyweds. I do not know. The woman wears the man's arm like a shawl. I have nothing to do at night. Have no one to be beside me. A jacket is what I need. Or lacking that, beer. Friend of ancient Constance. Next poem is called Utus Nanghari. Sapagkat tapos na ang panahon ng mga bayani na naglahot sukat ng wala nang magawa. Sapagkat ang espada nila'y matagal ng bali-bali at ang apoy at bagyo ay namayapa. Sapagkat sa gubat na hindi na kailangang daanan ang nuno sa punsoy Wala nang diligensya. Sapagkat ng ibang bayan na ang, tulir, ang tulirong tikbalang at ni isang aswang ay walang natira. Ngayon, sa makatuwid, ay hayaang mapagtibay. Tulad ng dito'y pinagtitibay na minsan sa isang taon ay ipag-aalay ang mga mabunying bayanis ng lahi ng mababangong bulaklak at mahabang talumpate. At ipakukulong ang sinumang magtatangka na muling pumasok sa gubat at ipabibitay din ang sinumang maghanap sa bundok ng diwata. King's Orders Whereas the time for heroes is past and there's nothing more for them to do. Whereas swords have all gone to rust and fire and storm have been pacified. Whereas in forests we no longer have to cross, the old troll has lost his protection racket. Whereas confused monsters are in exile and not a single witch remains now. Therefore, be it resolved as it is hereby resolved that once a year we shall offer the illustrious heroes of the race flagrant flowers and boring speeches. And whoever tries to return to the forest shall be jailed. Whoever goes up the mountain to look for nymphs shall be hanged. Uh, the last poem is uh, the best. I actually uh, waited for this moment. Santong Paspasan. Nang kinapin si Marites ng anak ng congressman, parang alitap-tap ang mga bituin at kabilugan ang buwan. Nang dalhin sa novalices 
si Marites. Isinasayaw ng hangin ang nagtataasang talahib at maulinig ang mga kuliglig. Apat na kabarkada ang kasama ng anak ng congressman sa kanyang bagong mustang at kamukha ni Susan Roses si Marites. Nang hablutin ng barkada ang pantsuit ni Marites na yari sa hablon at pinaghirapan ng bakla, lumilindol sa Maynila at nagdidemonstrasyon ang sa imbase ang mga bata. Nang haplusin ng barkada ang panti ni Marites at dukutin ang kanyang tampaks, gumagapang ang tirgas sa mga kalsada ng sampalok at inirerekomenda ni Susan Roses sa TV ang locks. Apat na kabarkada ang kasama ng anak ng congressman sa gitna ng talahiban at lima ang sumampa kay Marites. At nang may labas ng lima ang kanilang sama ng loob sa nagdurugong kalooban nitong dating Doncelia, nagsindi sila ng blue seal at sinunog ang bulbol ni Marites. Apat na kabarkada ang kasama ng anak ng kongresman sa kanyang bagong mustang at kamukha ni Bella Flores si Marites. Nang pakawalan si Marites ng anak ng kongresman, naglasing ang boyfriend niya, kinilig sa tuwa ang mga diaryo at nagsalsal ang mga polis. Tatakbo si kongresman sa darating na halalan. Huwag natin siyang kalilimutan. By way of explanation, this poem was written in 1970 during the period of the first quarter storm. And this was like by itself a cannon shot because it broke uh, the uh, tradition of uh, Tagalog poetry. Um, we have... Can we pause for a 10-second tape change? We're ready. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we have a literary Tagalog, which is very difficult. It's very complex. It's very, very uh, elegant. And uh, even I, who, who am a native speaker of Tagalog, can barely understand it. And Pete Lacaba's poem, when it came out, used street language, a mixture of English and Tagalog, and a, and a very vulgar quote-unquote, words. So this poem started an entire new movement in uh, Tagalog poetry. (coughs) 
Its title in translation is Force of Circumstance, and it was translated from Tagalog by the poet. When Marites was kidnapped by a son of a congressman, the stars flickered like fireflies and the moon was full. When Marites was taken to Novaliches, the wind was dancing with the tall grass and the cicadas whistled insistently. Four members of his gang accompanied the son of a congressman in his new Mustang, and Marites looked like Susan Roses. When the gang ripped off the expensive pantsuit that a gay couturier had made for Marites, an earthquake was rocking Manila, and the kids were demonstrating at the embassy. When the gang caressed the panties of Marites and pulled out her tampax, tear gas was crawling on the streets of San Paloc, and Susan Roses was recommending Lux soap on TV. Four members of his gang accompanied the son of a congressman in the midst of the tall grass, and five young men mounted Marites. And when the five young men had vented their hot blood on the bleeding will of the ex-virgin, they lighted imported cigarettes and burned the pubic hair of Marites. Four members of his gang accompanied the son of a congressman in his new Mustang, and Marites now looked like Bella Flores. When Marites was released by the son of a congressman, her boyfriend got drunk. The papers shivered with glee, and the cops jerked themselves off. Mr. Congressman is set to run in the coming elections. Let us not forget him. We'll now end with the poetry of Jose Sison, who is still in prison in the Philippines, and his poems will be read by Quincy Troop. Not the, it's not the end. Don't go home when that's over. I just forgot that there's, we're going to have a folk music at the end. Rain and sun on the mountains. When thunder and lightning are over, Cold, dark clouds seem to dissolve the mountains into an ugly murk. But behind the dismal sight, rain soaks the earth, floats Demetrius, and pours life into the creeks and rivers. Amidst the howling of the winds, the trees and bushes of the heights are in deep-going nourishment. So are the crops on the plains. Then the sun breaks out of the gloom to give warmth to the mountains, to keep the roots of the woods more firm on the ground. 
The green splendor of all foliage shines and is celebrated by the wild singing of the birds and the happy antics of the beast. In the cool breeze, the sun shafts the limpid, thirst-quenching waters. If there were only rain and storm, the mountains would turn into mud. If there were only sun and drought, the mountains would turn into dust. The sun is resplendent against the rain. The rain is refreshing against the sun, grasping the long-term rhythm of the seasons. Their testiness and cumulative grace, the mountains maintain their majesty and proclaim their mastery over calamity. The gorilla is like a poet. The gorilla is like a poet, keen to the rustle of leaves, the break of twigs, the ripples of the river, the smell of fire, and the ashes of departure. The gorilla is like a poet. He has submerged, he has merged with the trees, the bushes, and the rocks. Ambiguous but precise, well-versed on the law of motion and master of myriad images. The gorilla is like a poet. In rhyme with nature, the subtle rhythm of the greenery, the inner silence, the outer innocence, the steel tinsel in grace, that ensnares the enemy. The gorilla is like a poet. He moves with the green-brown multitude in bush burning with red flowers that crown and hearten all, swarming the terrain as a flood, marching at last against the stronghold. An endless movement of strength. Behold, the protracted theme, the people's epic, the people's war. Brothers, among green leaves my brother fell on soil. On his forehead was his faith marked red by a bullet above sight, reaching brain, bringing blood below to his mouth agape, kissed at last by the bride of hunger, fond of delay. In that central part of the country, the helpless corpse received rifle butts on the stomach pit, Spilled were lumps of root plants, wild fruit. And soldier brother killer trotted with his fast foreign gun and received measly payment for a people gone. 
While my brother prayed on his own, dear brother, in the open plains, green woods, mountains and rivers, handsome handfuls of strangers smartly conspired, laughed with ornate native personages in large, clean, well-designed structures near the city harbors. Among visitors of the rooms were priests and prostitutes, palms close to their pockets. They come prim and proper, peddling their blessings to their benevolent men. Oh, my poor brother falling on Saul, how far you lay as another brother crushes your dry throat on general orders. The last poem is called In the Depths, Dark Depths. The enemy wants to bury us in the dark depths of prison. But shining gold is mined from the dark depths of the earth, and the radiant pearl is dived from the dark depths of the sea. We suffer, but we endure and draw up gold and pearl from depths of character formed so long in struggle. No other man has profoundly affected the cultural and intellectual life of the Philippines in the post-World War II period than Jose Maria Sison. He was already grand-uncle to many young men and women, even though he was still in his early 20s, after he graduated from the University of the Philippines, cum laude, having finished his degree in three years. When he was arrested in 1977, he was kept in isolation under maximum security and severely tortured. The only way to see him some two, three years later was when he was taken to the military tribunal for his court case. Young men and women would line the short walk from the street to the courthouse, to the courthouse door and shout out the news for Joma, as we call him, Joma. They would shout, Vietnam invaded Cambodia, the inflation rate is 60%, etc., etc. And they would do this despite the soldiers' irritation. It was the best way they could think of showing him how valued he was, how respected his intellectual capacities were, something which the military couldn't take away though they mangled his perishable flesh. Thank you. Um, we're ending with a very short poem in Tagalog, which was set to music. This was written in the 1930s by the greatest Tagalog lyric poet. It was written during the American occupation of the Philippines. And in 1972, after Marcelo was declared this poem resurfaced and it has become practically 
an anthem of our yearning for to be rid of the dictatorship. Uh, Romy Garcia will sing the song. The poet is uh, Jose Corazon de Jesus. Isang mapula at mainit na pagbati at pagyakap para sa lahat na nakikiisa sa sambayan ng Pilipino sa kanilang pakikipaglaban tungo sa kalayaan. Isang dakilang manunulat ng nagwika na ang Pilipinas daw ay isang bansa na kung saan ang mga awitin ay malulungkot. Sabalit ang mga tigman ay masasaya. Turaway dahilan sa ang mga awiting Pilipino ay naglalarawan ng mahabang panahong pagkaalipin. At ang mga tigman ay pinaglaban tungo sa kalayaan. Ang bayan kong Pilipinas. Ang bayan kong hirang Pilipinas ang pangalan, perlas ng silangan, sa taglay niyang kariktan, ngunit sa wing pala, sa mithing paglaya, laging lumuluha sa pagdaralita. Ay nanggintot bulaklak Pag-ibig na sa kaniyang palad Nagalay ng ganda't bilag At sa kaniyang yumi at ganda Tayuhan ay nahalina Bayan ko, pinihag ka Nasadlak sa dusa Ibon mang may layang lupa Ipad, kulungin mo at pumipiglas Bayan pa kayang saktal dilag Ang di magnasang makalpas Pilipinas kong minumutya Pugat ng luha ko't talita King at hika Makita kang saktalaya Kay sarap mabuhay sa sariling Bayan, kung walang alipin at may kalayan Ang bayang sinisiil, babangon lalaban din Ang silang ay pupula sa timyas ng paglaya Kay hirap mabuhay sa sariling bayan Kung ika'y alipin ng mga dayuhan Ang bayang sinisiil, babangon lalaban din. Ang silang ay pupula sa timyas ng paglaya. Ibon mang may layang lumipad, kulungin mo at bumibiglas. Bayan pa kayang saktal dilag, ang di magnasang makalpas. Pilipinas kong minumutya, pugad ng luha ko't 
Tallita, Akingad Hika, Makita Kangsak Tallaya. I just want to thank you all again for coming and remind you to take case sheets on the way out. Thank you. <laughs>